Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a podcast by Family Bridges for modern parenting. Check out this week's episode. The more Blanca tried to be perfect, the less perfect her life was getting. Her grades were getting worse. Her friends were ignoring her. She felt isolated and anxious. She couldn't do anything right. One day, she sat in class and realized her stomach was growling. I was so mad all the time. But one day, I realized that I was mad because I was afraid of letting go of my eating disorder. My eating disorder felt like my best friend. How could I give it up? One day, as she held her newborn daughter in her arms, she thought of all the things she might do wrong. How could she raise this child, she thought. Uh, Thanks, narrator, but I'll take it from here. The Struggle is Real podcast starts in 3, 2, 1. Welcome once again to The Struggle is Real. I'm Veronica Avila, joined by my partners in podcasting. On this side, Omar Ramos. Hello, my podcasting team. <laughs> also, our expert in family relations. Dr. Alicia Laos. How are you doing today? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm great to see you guys again. Yes, I'm pretty excited actually about this topic because it's it's a topic that affects many kids and adults and we may not even notice. This is an episode on eating disorders. Oh, wow. We've heard a lot of that before. Uh, situations that affect friends and family and all that. To help us navigate through this complex subject, we've invited Dr. Margaret Nagib. Uh, she's a 15 years of clinical psychology experience specializing in counseling those with eating disorders, trauma, addiction, self-injury, and mood disorders. She's published Relevant Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, and many more. Doctor, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, an eating disorder takes many forms, doctor, depending on what the person is trying to handle. For those lacking knowledge on this subject, can you please help us understand what is involved when we talk about eating disorders? Yeah, you know, there really is a continuum. It can be anything from what we call disordered eating to a full-fledged eating disorder. And, you know, people fall somewhere on that continuum. But when we're talking about a full-fledged eating disorder, there's three main categories. The first one is called anorexia, and that's when there is severe weight loss and the person is underweight, has fears about gaining weight that are pretty intense and cause issues both physiologically and socially and mentally. There's bulimia, which can involve binging and purging. And then there's binge eating disorder, when someone struggles with overeating pretty large amounts of food in one sitting, but they don't necessarily do anything to get rid of it. They don't necessarily vomit or overexercise or anything like that. Mm, Well, thanks for sharing that information with us. Now, I'd like to click on the icebreaker button right now. Has anyone ever experienced an eating disorder personally or through a loved one? I'm going to go ahead and start with Dr. Alicia. When I was in high school, I do remember having some friends that I was very concerned about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, they struggled with this personally, and it took such a strong toll in their lives as well as their families. So it's definitely something that's out there in our communities. Mm -hmm. Before we started this podcast, I was actually having a conversation with Dr. Laos um, about a loved one that suffered an eating disorder. She got help for that. But from that stemmed other issues, which now she's dealing with. Thank God she's getting help for it. But just very interested in learning more on how we can also help her and help others that are going through something like this. How about you? Well, yeah, I have an eating disorder. I eat all the time. And <laughs> I don't know if that's considered an eating disorder, but no, seriously here. Um, a couple of years ago, I dated a girl that um, I had no idea she was going through depression. Later in the relationship, she revealed that to me. But it got to the point where, I mean, she just, she was very picky with food and it was like everything that she would put in 
in her system. She weighed and this and this and this and that. And it got to the point where she got sick. She uh, developed what they call a leaky gut syndrome. And it just went downhill from that. It just kind of affected the relationship. And unfortunately, we didn't continue together. But I do remember this like it was just yesterday. So it was a eating disorder that was connected with so many other things. So it was a very unfortunate and uncomfortable situation. Wow. Now, I'm going to share some quick facts. Thank you for sharing that, Omar. According to the Let's Check In campaign in 2017 by the Center for Eating Disorders at Shepherd Pratt, eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. Now, half of all Americans know someone with an eating disorder. That's about 20 to 30 million people in the U.S. that will suffer from an eating disorder in their lifetime. Wow. Now, it's also very important that people understand that eating disorders do not discriminate based on age, gender, Mm -hmm. ethnicity, or uh, socioeconomic status. You can't tell whether somebody has one just by looking at them. That's right. Now, the good news is that education, support, and awareness for this population are improving, and more males are seeking and receiving treatment. Hmm. Now, from a male's perspective, males account for an estimated 35% of those with binge eating disorders, 5 to 50% of patients with anorexia and bulimia. Now, developing a strong support system, including specially trained clinicians, is an integral part of the recovery process. And that's exactly what Dr. Margaret Nagib does with her team at the clinic where she works at. So thanks again for being with us, Dr. Nagibi. Yes, definitely. So I'd like to uh, mention that today's sketches were written by our guest writer, Alice Torres, her personal experience with eating disorders. Now, let's go ahead and listen to our first scene. It's called Mirror, Mirror. Once upon a time, there was a girl who was perfect at everything. She said the right things, got the best grades, and said her prayers every night. She was always early, was the best student in her high school, and she obeyed every rule. Even her name seemed perfect. Blanca. Blanca. It meant white and pure. She loved to repeat her name over and over, like casting a spell, reminding herself of what she was. Blanca's parents loved her deeply. And every day when she came home from school, they would follow the routine. Mija, you're just in time. Papa and I finished making some puerquitos. Come, sit with us. How was school? Tell us what you learned. Today we learned about long division. Oh, yes. I remember long divisions. It was so confusing. (laughs) I like it. I like the way the numbers fall in line so carefully. (laughs) Of course you do, our little perfectionist. (laughs) (laughs) They would eat and talk for hours, helping Blanca while she did her homework and cooking dinner together when she was done. Every day, the same routine. And every night, Blanca would go to bed thinking about how perfect her life was. Until one morning, in school, the teacher called on her, like always, and Blanca walked up to the board and completed the equation perfectly. Um, actually, Blanca, that answer is incorrect. I'm afraid you missed a step there. Oh, I... Oh, excuse me, may I go to the bathroom for a moment? When Blanca got to the bathroom, she looked at her face in the mirror. How had she never noticed that her right arm was longer than her left? That her face was lopsided? That her thighs were so large? Or that her stomach was so flabby? How had she not noticed how completely imperfect she was? Later that day when she got home, her parents were waiting for her. 
Mija, you're just in time. Papa just sliced up some fruit for us. Uh, not today, guys. I have a big assignment due, so I'm just gonna go get started on that in my room. Okay, well, come down later for dinner. We're making your favorite, arroz con pollo. Actually, I had a really big lunch today, so I'm not hungry. I'll talk to you guys later. Soon, things started to change for Blanca. She began working all the time. She no longer told her parents about her day. She stopped answering calls or texts from her friends. She stopped eating meals with her parents, instead using that time to work. The more Blanca tried to be perfect, the less perfect her life was getting. Her grades were getting worse. Her friends were ignoring her. She felt isolated and anxious. She couldn't do anything right. One day, she sat in class and realized her stomach was growling. Dude, was that you? Uh, yeah, sorry. I guess I forgot to eat breakfast again. You've been doing that a lot lately. Want to head to the cafeteria with me? It's pizza day. No, that's okay. I packed my lunch today. See you around. But in that moment, Blanca noticed that skipping meals worked like a spell. It felt like the appropriate balance, a punishment that evened out her failures, an easy and clear answer. When she stopped eating, she felt calm, like everything was manageable. If her body was clean and perfect, then she could be as well. And if she could be perfect, then she could finally live happily ever after. Okay, so we're back, and wow, that was very touching. That was the beginning of Blanca's story. We see a combination of high self-esteem and perfectionism there. Obviously, it takes a turn for the worse. She starts noticing her body is not perfect, something that had not bothered her before. Now, Dr. Margaret, how can self-esteem and perfectionism play a role in eating disorders? Some children just normally tend to be more perfectionistic and rigid in their thinking. And so that can really cause a lot of anxiety for them because, you know, their sense of self comes from doing things perfectly and doing things well. Mm-hmm. And they don't realize that really underneath it is their needing to understand who they are. That's not based on just what they do or what they accomplish. And so that anxiety builds and sometimes people fall into eating disorders and they start using food as a way to feel perfect because they can control their food. They can't always control their performance, but they can control what they put in their mouth. Mm. And that actually lessens the anxiety that they feel. It actually helps regulate their emotion. Now, not in a healthy way, but it does work. And so someone like Blanca can get caught up in that because Mm -hmm. it helps her deal with the anxiety of all the time or performing the way she would like to perform. Yes. And it seemed that she she, she kind of lived like in a bubble, I guess, if I may say, because she was perfect in the eyes of her family all this time, right? And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, it was a math problem that triggered the new way that she looked at herself now because then she started noticing that she wasn't perfect, which was crazy. This reminded me of a personal story, and I'll share it really quickly. Uh, when I went into college, I remember I come up from a Mexican family. My mom, my mom's food is amazing. I love it. But when I went into college, I remember the orientation that we had summer program. And the first thing that came out of the mouth of that lady was, well, the average college student gains 10 pounds in the first year. And it hit me like a ton of bricks because I had never mm-hmm. realized that. I had never even thought of myself of being fat, skinny or whatever. I never even cared. But then when she said that, I just kept thinking, now I'm, I'm 4'10". <laughs> and I'm like, uh, 10 more pounds? 
these are thoughts that came to mind. I'm going to start rolling down the, the streets, you know, because it's the first year you're going to gain 10 pounds. So I, very, I became very self-conscious. And instead of, I guess, eating a healthy way, whatever, I started doing what Blanca did. I started not eating with my family because mm. my I thought my mom's food was too greasy now. So instead in that first year, instead of gaining the 10 pounds, I lost like almost 15 pounds because I stopped eating. But then I became very self-conscious. I started, they showed us how to read nutritional labels. Every time I would shop, I would be reading the nutrition facts. Oh no, this is too much. Oh, and I became obsessed. I'm not going to say I didn't. I became obsessed with it. I am not going to gain weight. I'm so short. And then here I I'm gaining 10 pounds. What's going to happen in the second year? 15 more pounds? Oh, my goodness, no. And I think that went through probably my whole college years. I had that in mind. Then, obviously, the the years pass by and you start kind of balancing it out, hopefully. (laughs) But when I heard this sketch, it just kind of hit me. You know, I had never really thought about it. When you don't really see it or you're not even aware and then somebody points it out, then now you have it in your head. How much... Do people that are around us or the voices that are surrounding us and our kids affect us? It's a huge effect. I mean, sometimes it could be as something as innocent as what you experienced Mm -hmm. or a child coming home from health class, having learned about different things. And and part of it is the emotion that's attached to it, you know, the anxiety around Mm -hmm. it. So someone else might have heard that same thing and, and not have gotten anxious about it. At the end of the day, that is a true statistic that college students gain anywhere between 10 and 15 pounds. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you think about it, it's the first time they're away from home. Mm -hmm. It's a very stressful time. And so always underneath eating disorders is some type of emotional connection. And so it's not uncommon that we may look to food either to comfort Mm -hmm. us by overeating or by undereating. And so it's so important for us to look at the messages that we're getting. There's so many messages, so many diets, it changes every day and, you know, really needing to be educated and good consumers of that information before we run off and you know get anxious about what we put in our mouths or what we don't put in our mouths. Margaret, you know, this whole thing is so interesting. One of the, you know, the voices. Sometimes mm. we listen to some health advice and it's done in, in good counsel. And, you know, in this case, the college advisor is mm-hmm. just trying to prep students so that they maybe eat more healthy. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe it comes mm-hmm. across as a healthy. But for some folks, that takeaway might drive them towards being becoming more obsessive mm-hmm. and who knows that can then take them over to something why is it that for some kids they could listen to advice about health and just go with it in a balanced way and maybe have some healthy diet versus mm-hmm. taking that and then having the irrational thoughts that then is a precursor yeah. to the eating disorder well i think some people just may have more risk factors for bona fide eating disorders there are biological risk factors and if it runs in your family you're more likely to struggle or fall into those patterns of behavior mm-hmm. and then you know we've already talked about maybe more of the psychological risk factors like kids who tend to be more perfectionistic or anxious or have trouble regulating their emotions. And then, of course, there's the cultural risk factors of the pressure now that we put on kids to look a certain way or to you know, be a certain weight. And so it's hard to pinpoint. There's usually a combination of different things that go into someone developing eating disorder symptoms. But almost always there's an underlying issue, whether it's low self-esteem or anxiety or depression or feeling lost in the world. And so the good news is we can address those underlying issues. And then oftentimes, you know, the behaviors can be 
brought into a more healthy alignment. What about, you know, in the first kit, we looked at the perfectionism that she had, you mm-hmm. know, and that was almost seemed like self-imposed. What about the family? Have you seen it where it's more of a perfectionism toll that the family kind of carries and then it leads towards the eating? Yeah. You know, your family has a culture and has values. And so this family might have had a really high value for, you know, academics, excellence, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you take that and you couple it with a kid who tends to be perfectionistic and it can really be a recipe for disaster because if it creates anxiety or it creates, you know, low self-esteem or they never feel like enough, then it's really important for parents to recognize that and then adjust. Mm-hmm. So I've actually had parents tell their kids to not clean their room or, or tell their kids to not study for a test just to kind of shake up the system a little bit and mm-hmm. show that child like, no, we love you no matter what. And yes, do your best, but not at the price of hurting yourself and feeling bad about yourself. Is there any uh, additional positive influence tips when it comes to working with their self-image so they don't have to turn to practices that will result in eating disorders, Dr. Alicia? Since a lot of it is running into the emotional and, and regulating the emotions, mm-hmm. that it seems like, can we teach our kids some coping mechanisms, some coping skills to deal with the stressors? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, hey, everybody has heard about how food is comfort food. You know, you yes. have a bowl of ice cream when you're having a down Yay. day. And, you know, that... I'm not saying there's anything mm-hmm. wrong when you have a rainy day in your life, but what if you habitually turn into that and maybe your family? So I'm just wondering, as, as families, can we practice some healthy coping skills to deal with the stressors so we can, you know, teach our kids how to get that out of our system? Because we're going to have stress, good yes. and bad. And if we learn how to cope with it and mitigate that, that to a certain extent, you would hope that that would be a protective factor. I love that. If we can get some tips by the end of the of this podcast that we can tell parents on what to do with the kids so they can learn how to cope with it, that would be awesome. Why don't we listen to our next sketch? This is called Treatment. Months went by and Blanca began to fade into nothingness, a shadow of herself whose only goal was to be perfect. She wasn't eating at all, and she wouldn't speak to her family when they tried to talk to her about it. Her parents knew that, even though they loved her more than anything, they could not help her on their own. So they took Blanca to a brick building that looked like a tower and checked her into the eating disorder ward of an intensive inpatient treatment facility. Blanca hated it there. She felt trapped and was constantly panicked about missing school. Her parents visited her every day, but every day, Blanca ignored them. She did not want to get better and was angry at them for putting her there. One day, after her parents had left, she heard a knock on the door. Sorry, this is a private room. Yeah, I don't think they actually have those in eating disorder wards. I've been to like six. At all of them, you have to have a roommate. I'm Jess. Blanca. What are you in for? What? Your diagnosis? Like... What are you in for? Um, and anorexia nervosa. You? Ah, a goody two-shoes. I'm in for binge disorder. What's that? Compulsive binge eating episodes. It's like bulimia nervosa, you know? Binge, then purge. But I skip the purge part. Or at least I used to. Used to? Five weeks clean. This time, treatment actually really helped. I'm discharging next week. Which is good, because my insurance is about to run out. How did you do it? I feel like I'm never going to get out of here. This place sucks. It's cold. I don't have time for this. 
I need to be back at school. I have an essay due in three days and my midterms are next week. Everyone here treats me like a child. They make me eat so much food and see so many therapists who don't understand. I don't think that this will ever work. I used to feel like that all the time. I didn't trust anyone. And there are definitely some therapists who really don't understand. And being the only black girl in the treatment room made me feel more alone. I was so mad all the time. But one day I realized that I was mad because I was afraid of letting go of my eating disorder. My eating disorder felt like my best friend. How could I give it up? But I thought about it and I finally saw that my eating disorder always hurt me. It made me sick and sad and alone and it never really fixed anything. So then I got mad at the eating disorder. That helped? Yeah. Well, not overnight, but eventually. Little by little, I stopped getting mad at myself. I tried to control the eating disorder instead of letting it control me. Wow. Are they paying you to say all this? (laughs) (laughs) I wish. Did it work? Maybe a little. Mm, Then maybe I'll start charging. Group is about to start. I was going to skip it. Come on. We could walk over together. Yeah. Okay. I'd like that. Okay, so that was Blanca. She was placed in an eating disorder treatment center. Now, this was a very hard step that many families have to take for the well-being of their loved one. In this case, Blanca was pretty angry at her family for taking her there. Once there, she met Jess, who has been through six centers and finally getting better. She literally understands where Blanca is coming from. Now, Dr. Laos, how important is empathy when wanting to help a loved one? Oh, it's huge. Um, But this skit was packed with... Lots of nuggets. Perseverance of the family of taking her from one treatment center. So sometimes we just want to try one therapist for one hour. It doesn't work. Um, Whether it be depression, anxiety, or marriage problems, Mm -hmm. you know, we need to give it time. And that's because we all have a different process of change. Of course. And, you know, at the beginning, sometimes there's some denial, there's some resistance. So there's some pacing in that, that we have to be patient with one another. And then the other thing that, that struck me, I mean, a lot struck me, but one thing that struck me was that what she said is my eating disorder was like my best friend. Mm-hmm. And I think, Margaret, you can speak to this, but I, I've seen a lot where people will carry around whatever mental health diagnosis they have as part of who they are. And it's so important to create a little bit of that separation but yeah I mean it's very common for eating disorders and you know if you think of Blanca in some ways she was special it made her special and it made her feel powerful when she wasn't powerful so if you think about it most people can't go through the day without eating and so when someone develops an eating disorder and they feel that oh wow I can do this I cannot eat I can lose weight it makes them feel special and it gives them a reason to feel effective. It's very hard to separate initially in treatment, you know, their sense of identity from this eating disorder. And so that's one of the major first steps of treatment is helping them see how they use the eating disorder to help them feel differently and then begin to help them see that they can use more healthy ways to feel powerful and successful instead of having to rely on the eating disorder. Dr. Margaret, I'd like to ask you as well, when it comes to eating disorders, how can you tell when it's a real problem versus a phase and when and how do you take your loved one your significant other or whoever it is that needs help to a recovery center? I think it's always important when you see kind of the signs and symptoms 
to take it seriously Mm -hmm. because a phase can turn into an eating disorder. We often say that dieting is kind of the gateway. You know how we talk about gateway drugs? Dieting is kind of the gateway drug to someone developing an eating disorder. So I think it's important early on when you're noticing behaviors in someone just to come alongside them and say, hey, you know, I'm noticing this, this and this. Can we talk? What's going on? But if you do decide, you know, you come to a, a point where it's like, oh, this is serious. We need some help then I think it's so important to get a professional on your side, even if it's just early on, because professionals can see it and they will they will know. They will know after one or two sessions whether this is, like you said, a phase or something more serious, and they will help guide the process to getting that person help. So I think it's so important for parents to understand that they shouldn't do it alone, that they shouldn't make decisions on their own, mm-hmm. because eating disorders are counterintuitive. You know, you think, well, if they'll just eat more, they'll just do this, but it really takes a professional eye to kind of help tease out what's really happening. In that light, given that a lot of the listeners are parents with kids of different ages, when do you typically see the eating disorder? What's the onset age that you typically see something like that developing? Unfortunately, it can be any age. You know, I've worked with kids as little as six. Now, a six-year-old may or not necessarily have an eating disorder because they think they're fat. It might be that perfectionism or they might have a food allergy and then kind of some of the anxiety around that food created an eating disorder. So really, it can start pretty young. But typically, if you look at the research, adolescence seems Mm -hmm. to be the place of onset, especially for girls. So, you know, self-esteem tends to plummet for girls around puberty. And that's because there's this added idea of I have to be beautiful or look a certain way. Yeah. And um, so adolescence is usually the average onset. Hmm. Now, once you realize that your loved one needs treatment and you've already contacted the center, you've already contacted the professionals, how do you prepare for the resistance that you may get from your loved one? And then can yeah. other mental problems stem from this? Yeah, there's almost always resistance. It's part of the part of the work with eating disorders because people don't usually have insight initially. There's denial initially. And so usually what I recommend is that the parent maybe see the therapist first Mm -hmm. and get some coaching on how to even address how are you going to bring this person in for a session. But it's very common. It's very normal in the early stages. And that's when I really just ask parents to sit tight and just continue to bring them and continue to kind of follow the treatment plan until we can get them to a place where they begin to see. But, you know, one of the beautiful things of working with kids is they're under 18. And so I really, I really encourage the parents. I I say to them, I know it's going to be hard. It's probably going to cause a lot of struggle and conflict. But right now you have the power to help your child. If we wait too long and they're out on their own, then we no longer have that power. And so there's a lot of support that the therapist will do with the parents and the loved ones initially because of that. Wow. Thank you for that. Great stuff. No doubt. Really. Thank you for that helpful information. Now we're going to go ahead and move forward. And this is our final sketch. This is called Recovery. Years went by and Blanca started to get stronger after two stays in inpatient and three intensive outpatient sessions she finally began to find peace on her own slowly she began to live the life she'd been missing out on she moved out of her parents house but still went back every Sunday for family dinner and eventually had a family of her own she always had to fight back thoughts about being perfect and some days were much harder than others. The thoughts lingered in the back of her mind, like a shadow. One day, as she held her newborn daughter in her arms, she thought of all the things she might do wrong, 
How could she raise this child, she thought. Uh, Thanks, narrator, but I'll take it from here. You sure? Yeah, I'm ready. Paige, I know you don't know what I'm saying yet, but I'm your mama. I can't always promise that I'll have the answers to everything. I can't promise that I'll do everything perfectly, but I promise I'll try really hard. I promise to dance with you late at night, even when I don't feel like dancing. I promise to let you sing as loud as you want, even if you can't hold a note. I promise to let you ask every single question you have, even if I don't have the answers. I promise to read you Shakespeare and Allende and Chopra as bedtime stories. I promise never to talk down to you. I promise to let you teach me, even when I want to do all of the teaching. I promise to tell you that monsters don't exist. And I promise to listen when you tell me that, in fact, they do. I promise to tell you about all of the amazing women who exist. I promise to teach you to listen, even when all you want to do is talk. And I promise to let you read Jane Austen, even though I will secretly hope that you hate her. I promise to take you to many churches and temples and synagogues and let you take me to church when you found your home. I promise to let you map your dreams like stars and to show you how to catch each one of them on the tip of your tongue. I promise to let you fall down as long as you promise to get back up. And I promise to abolish the words fat and skinny. I promise to do yoga and go surfing together because it's good for your body. And I promise to split a pint of ice cream because that is good for your soul. I promise to remind you that you are not a body, but a work of art. And I promise to tell you that your nose is perfect because it will remind you of the grandpa you never knew. I promise to tell you that those round cheeks that you hate are evidence that you belong to an ancient Aztec people. I promise to remind you that those curls that you're straightening into submission will always fight back because they are gifts from both Spanish and Welsh queens. I promise to tell you that your body is perfect simply because it can run, cry, soar, scream, kiss, hug, and smile. I promise to show you the strength inside of your body. And when you come to me someday, brandishing your own scars, and voices and tears and ask me if you're beautiful. I promise to wipe your eyes, kiss your cheeks, and remind you that it does not matter. I promise to take your hand and lead you into the kitchen and bake a cake with four sticks of butter. And I promise that we will live happily ever after. Okay, wow, let me get this knot out of my throat here. That was very touching, almost magically poetic. So Blanca finally took control of her story and makes a pledge, a very important pledge to her daughter of doing everything in her power to make her, you know, just to assure that she loves herself as she is and to help her live a life that doesn't depend on superficial. She came to her full circle. What does it take Dr. Alicia, to be able to accomplish this? Well, we saw throughout the progression of the skits that it took 
her entering into a journey of, of getting help. And I think that that's, that's a powerful story that yes. change is possible so that we're not tied to whatever circumstances that, you know, as you're listening to this podcast, if you find yourself in whatever season of challenge that you may be facing, that that's not the end, mm-hmm. you know, that you really can see redemption, you know, and that there is the process of change can occur. I do want to caution. I mean, I love the story. I love the poem. But, you know, at the same time, you know, you almost see her trying so hard to compensate for perhaps the suffering that she went through. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. she's doing this wonderful, beautiful pledge to her daughter. But then it ends in, you know, I promise you this happy life. And mm-hmm. and just want to caution that we don't have to do that, that that life is painful and that there is crosses to bear. And that while we personally might have difficulty and challenges and we don't Mm -hmm. want our children to experience that, that they will experience pain and they will experience struggles and we can't always protect them from that as well. So part of the journey in life is is embracing that they will fall and they will get hurt as well. So we don't want to necessarily take pain away from them because in the end, pain is a gift. It helps us grow too. Interesting that you say that because that's how we saw Blanca in the beginning. Mm -hmm. That bubble that I was talking about. And then it burst. We want to ensure that we don't do the same thing with our kids mm-hmm. moving forward. Thank you for that. Now, she also is aware, and this is for Dr. Nagib, she was also aware that she is not perfect. How important is that self-check to be able to guide our kids down a more holistically healthy path? Um, yeah, it was so neat to see that in her progression, that she began to ease up on herself and and enjoy life more. And, and then did you notice how her true power came back, especially in that last skit? Mm-hmm. And realizing that I am powerful, I am beautiful, and I have this life now that I get to support. I agree with Alicia. She went, she went a little too far. But, but, you know, that's Blanca. Blanca loves excellence. And so mm-hmm. um, that's always going to be her growth edge. It's her biggest strength. And she, it's also something that she has to keep in check. So I think we can share that with our kids, that oftentimes their biggest strength, when not kept in check, can also kind of steal them the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Um, But really, it's about balance and enjoying life and food is for enjoyment and to keep us healthy and whole. So it's always about helping to teach them balance. Talking about teaching, what practical tips can you give parents to help avoid eating disorders with their children or those surrounding them, Dr. Alicia? That's the the golden question of the day. (laughs) Um, Gosh, with eating disorders, it's so tricky because we eat, we need to eat three meals a day at least. And some people need to eat, you know, six Mm -hmm. meals, whatever it might be. So that's something that we need in order to survive. It's not drugs that you obviously can avoid. Yeah. Uh, So I think it is tricky. But if we think about what the role of eating is, you know, when it starts getting into the cautionary note of it being something that we use for comfort or for coping, like I said earlier, perhaps we can think about early on when we are tempted to utilize food as our comfort, is there something else that we can, you know, bring about? And as parents, we don't do it consciously, but Mm -hmm. we might get into a habit of rewarding behavior with food. And I just wonder, maybe we can be more thoughtful about that because then we're tying performance to food. You did a good job. I'm going to give you the candy bar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't do that harmfully. But if we get habituated into that, I wonder if we start associating performance with food. Maybe we need to kind of think about that again. Or how can we, when we're mad or we're angry, when our kids lash out, when they have a temper tantrum, can we teach them coping skills to manage and regulate those feelings so that as the struggle goes through life because it will, you are more habituated to going into, you know, I need to draw, I'm going to listen to music, I'm going to, you know, run a few laps around my backyard, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, coping with healthy ways instead of just automatically going to something that's not helpful. I like that. 
And if we start early, then they'll get used to it and they won't have to fall into this, hopefully. Now, obviously, eating disorders are real, but there's help and you can call the National Eating Disorders Association, also known as NIDA hotline. That number is 800-931-2237. Again, that's 800-931-2237. Or you can visit their website at nationaleatingdisorders.org. Thank you very much to both of you for a crucial conversation, Dr. Margaret, Dr. Alicia Laos. Where can we learn more about what you do, Dr. Margaret, and your services as well? You can call or go to TimberlineKnowles.com. It's actually a residential treatment center for women and adolescents. So if you just go to TimberlineKnowles.com, that would be a great way to learn more and connect with me. Awesome. Thank you for that. Dr. Alicia, what words of advice do you have to keep it real? I think for parents, you know, you start recognizing something that's fishy with your children, even if it's early on. Just don't overthink it. Go get some help. Go Mm -hmm. get some counsel. Better early to try to provide, you know, be more preventative and proactive than having something take its course and it be more complicated. If you are finding yourself in a circumstance like this, do trust the process. I know there's some resistance that maybe you or your family member will have. And that period, it could be very tough. It could be very taxing. But through that journey, eventually, you know, there is another side. Mm -hmm. and ultimately hope is in the way it will come things will change and then I think lastly as parents let's just continue to teach our kids some good healthy coping skills and have a healthy view of food in general so that we don't get some distortion along the way that can then create more problems and havoc great thank you for that All right. Great stuff. Well, that ends today's episode of The Struggle is Real. Additional resources are available at FamilyBridgesUSA.org. Stay on top of The Struggle is Real on social media with the hashtag The Struggle is Real or hashtag T-S-I-R. Like always, thank you so much for clicking, for tuning in, for listening. I am Omar Ramos. And Dr. Alicia Laos. And I'm Veronica Avila. Till next time. This was The Struggle is Real by Family Bridges. For more ideas on parenting, get your copy of The Struggle is Real by Drs. Paul Meyer and Alicia Laos on FamilyBridgesUSA.com.